podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. Imagine how it would feel to face an ultra-rare cancer with only about 2,000 known diagnoses ever. Anya Magnuson doesn't need to imagine how this can feel. She's lived through it. Anya was a 19-year-old photojournalism student when she was diagnosed with Erdheim-Chester disease, or ECD, an extremely rare and currently incurable type of blood cancer. Patients with ECD had very few effective options for treatment until recently. One of Anya's oncologists, Dr. Jitma Abikun of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and his colleagues discovered that Anya lives with an ECD-causing genetic mutation. Thanks to donor-funded research supported by Conquer Cancer, Dr. Abikun and his team effectively developed a treatment approach that brought Anya from a death sentence to managing her cancer with minimal side effects. Today, Colleen Kelly, Anya's mother and longtime journalist, joins us to talk about Anya's experiences before diagnosis and during treatment, to share her own perspective as the parent of someone who is conquering cancer. She's joined by Dr. Abikun, who shares how and why his vital research made Anya's treatment possible. Colleen, Jebna, thank you so much for joining us today. I think our audience will drive a tremendous amount from listening to you. But before we get started, just to kind of set the stage, please tell our listeners where you're joining us from today. I'm joining from Minneapolis. I'm joining from Boston. Oh, wonderful. Well, welcome to you both. And I imagine through this platform, we'll get to reach an audience literally across the world. So thank you for, again, joining today. Conley, I'm going to start with you. As I mentioned prior to the start of the recording, I'm a rare disease patient. I'm the parent of a child with a rare disease. So I have both empathy and sympathy for your situation. But every family, every story is unique. And so I want to hear about your daughter, if you don't mind my asking. So can you tell us more about Anya and her life before receiving a cancer diagnosis? How would you describe her? Well, she's hard to describe in words. Throughout high school, she was extremely driven, but driven to the beat of her own drum in her own way. Like she was a National Merit Scholar who did exceptionally well at school and worked very hard, but she wrote her college essay about washing dishes at camp. And she worked 80-hour weeks in the summer, learned Spanish on her own after having a base in Latin. She was a state champion in mock trial, yearbook editor, all-conference volleyball player, just determined to take the world by storm and filled with energy and ideas. She was just unstoppable. That was what I remember. What a Renaissance woman. That's incredible. Like you, I mean, if you ask me to sum up my children in a sentence or two, I think I'd be hard-pressed to do so. But I think you gave us a very nice snapshot of a, a very talented, vibrant young woman. So obviously, even the very nature of this podcast gives us some sense of foreshadowing. But can you walk us through what it felt like when Anya received her ECD diagnosis? And actually, let's start with your experience as the parent. Well, the diagnosis was just complete disbelief. Doctors had been looking at so many different things. Hers, for even for ECD, was a very unusual presentation. Her presentation wasn't with bone pain or a lot of the more common problems. She had meningitis, which caused out-of-control intracranial hypertension. 
which was causing her to lose her vision and have horrible headaches. So they were investigating things like neurosarcoidosis and fungal meningitis. Because of the out-of-control intracranial hypertension, she had already had a brain biopsy, a VP shunt inserted, a shunt infection, emergency surgery to remove that shunt, and so many lumbar punctures and hospital admissions. We counted. At some point, she had the head like 35 lumbar punctures. So when the spine biopsy results came back in, Anya was just about to fly back to college, and Mayo scrambled to get her a same-day appointment to talk to someone, and they did get her a same-day appointment, which in typical Mayo form is unbelievable. But it was so out of the blue that it wasn't until I looked at the name tag on the doctor and saw hematology oncology under his name that I understood what was about to happen. So I don't know that she did, but as he walked into the room, it was a colleague of Dr. Abby Coons. I just saw hematology oncology. My eyes got wide. So to this day, I've kept notes from like the little spiral paper that I was writing furiously, all the different genetic markers, because it was completely foreign. So they had been looking at so many other things that it was a complete surprise. The moment I really remember during that, though, wasn't just the diagnosis, but I remember the doctor saying that it was the words were very careful. They didn't consider it a fatal diagnosis, which I knew that they were drawing like it was tiptoeing down that line. And Anya was in shock, of course, and just said it was extremely important for her to maintain her independence and finish college. And her doctor leaned over and looked her in the eyes and just said, well, then that's what we're going to try to do. And that was extremely reassuring just because we knew even in the months before the diagnosis came in that they just weren't going to stop. That's just the feeling we had. They were going to keep trying. They were, you know, they had reached out to the CDC. They weren't going to stop. They were just going to try to figure it out. As Anya processed this, to the extent you can speak for her, how much of it was realizing, okay, I have a malignancy and how much of it was realizing, oh, actually I have a super rare illness as well. Were those two things kind of inextricable? They were only because at that time she hadn't had any genetic testing. So we knew the treatments, that there were treatments. So we were told that, that there were treatments. But I think when you're talking about an ultra rare cancer, it's different than like, I don't know, I'm only presuming, but certain other cancers that are far more common, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, the stage or whatever, and then this is the protocol. And so with ECD, there's really no protocol. I mean, once you have genetic testing, say you're BRAF positive or negative, your protocol would come from that. But at that time, all they could tell us was there were treatment options and that they were going to work to try to get her on what turned out to be the first of four treatments that didn't work. We knew there were options. But so like that part of it being rare was important and it was key because we also realized that there wasn't a lot of data. One of the things that we were warned about was Googling because unfortunately, even as recent as five years ago or so, ECD was a very poor outcomes diagnosis, particularly for someone who had it within their central nervous system. And so when I did Google, which I did, even though I'd been warned to like not necessarily believe it, you know, it was really horrifying. And that's something else that happens with the rare cancers because there's not a lot of data and then some of it's older. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I want to put all my cards on the table here. I think one of the reasons that I was asked to host this particular episode is, yes, I'm an oncologist, but I'm always a patient first. And as you'll understand, I'm also a parent, quite importantly, I think even before my professional role. And it's interesting because I see this from both sides. In my practice, common things are common. So the vast majority of my patients have, obviously, the more prevalent cancers. So for instance, this year in the US, there's going to be something like 150,000 
diagnoses of colorectal cancer at various stages. And yet when I was at Mayo, I was diagnosed with a really rare condition, a genetic condition that has an incidence of about one in 30,000. And I got to tell you, you mean, you've been to Rochester. It's a fantastic, fantastic place, but it's geographically somewhat isolated. You know, it's outside of the Twin Cities. But I found as a rare disease patient that actually the isolation came more from the fact I couldn't readily identify somebody who looked like me, who was going through the same disease as me at the same time. And I found that very, very difficult. It did feel like an extra layer of isolation on top of being a relatively young person diagnosed with a serious illness. And I do think that's part of it. Absolutely. And I would just go further to say, even with that small number of total cases, the ECD prevalence is more slight prevalence of men, more like in 50s and 60s. I personally know of two people, and there are a couple others, I know that, but there are two people that I know of below the age of 30 who have this. Yeah, we talk about N of one, but an N of two is not much larger, right? Three, I should say. There's three. Anya plus two. So yeah. We're still in the single digits. But I hear you. I mean, as a clinician, I literally, before this podcast, I was over in the hospital with a patient who just received a very rare diagnosis. And by my estimate, this patient, and I won't reveal their details, has a disease of which there's maybe a hundred people like them that I can find in the literature. And I'm going to do more research. But that means I don't have a lot to cite for them. You know, I don't have statistics. If you don't mind, let's pivot to one of the physicians who was involved in Anya's care. Uh, Dr. Abikun, again, welcome. I think you told me earlier it's okay if I call you Jitma. And welcome to the conversation. And first of all, thank you for what you've done here. Can you tell us, especially our audience who may not have ever heard of Erdheim Chester before, can you tell us about ECD and maybe specifically, if you don't mind, the mutation that you found here that you thought maybe was a, a target of sorts for Anya? Yeah, Dr. Lewis, thank you for that. So first, I will answer your first question, which is the ECD. So Erdheim-Chester's disease is, as Colleen said, it's a very rare disease, as you said, you about 2,000 diagnosed worldwide. So it was first described in 1930s, 1930 by Jacob Erdheim and William Chester. However, it is initially not described as a cancer because all these diseases are associated with inflammation. The people get the rashes, the bone pain, the fevers sometimes, and also problems with the vasculature, that means the blood vessels and the heart and the brain. Any organ can be involved with Erdheim-Chester disease. It was recognized as a cancer because in 2012, BRAF V600E was identified in Erdheim-Chester. So whenever the mutation is identified on a disease, we suspect, oh, this is a clonal. Clonal means like one family of cells gives the origin to the disease bearing cells. So since it is a clonal origin, it is not like a general inflammation, then it begs the question, is this a cancer? So that is how the cancer story came. And that is where the Colleen said like, oh, you know, I just saw hematology, oncology, you know, like that suggests like, okay, this is going to be like a cancer diagnosis. So it took about around 1932, 2012, 82 years to actually get what is going on in this disease. We biopsy Anya's tissue at the time that she had heavy disease progression and she had been refractory to many, many kind of standard of care, you know, like the chemotherapy approach and also methotrexate chemotherapy approach and also like cobimetanib, the standard of care approaches for targeted therapy at that time. And then we said like, look, when you look at the disease biology, she's a young patient, no family history. 
So she has to have something driving this. Not disrespect to age, but if an 80-year-old patient gets a cancer, there are a lot of things we may not see like a driver, you know, because of the age, the mutation burden, and so forth. However, if a very young patient gets, then it begs the question, there should be a driver. Something is wrong. So we, after begging to the neurosurgeon, we got the biopsy of Anya's tissue. So one of the things, Dr. Lewis, that we need to stress in these kind of rare diseases is that the biopsy is very critical because this is a disease with inflammatory background. So it is not like biopsying a breast cancer or, you know, colon cancer where you have majority of the tumor in your biopsy. When you biopsy the histiocytic cancers, 90% of it's just inflammatory cells. It's not the clonal cancer cells. So the tumor burden is very low. And and Jim, I'm sorry, what exactly were you biopsying? What was the part of the body or the organ? We biopsied the spinal cord, the cauda equina, actually we biopsied because that is the most area that Anya had the disease. Anyway, so we biopsied it and then we sent to next generation sequencing, which is the sequencing of the genome profile. So I still remember I got the result and result is no identified tumor mutations, negative, zero. So I was thinking like, okay, nothing there. And then I glanced through the next page of the report, which is called Variants of Unknown Significance. And I treated the patient day before with the drug. So I called Dr. Go on his cell phone and I said, like, Dr. Go. So now Anya is in the hospital. Well, the biopsy, she had been hospitalized and that was her second spine biopsy. To be honest, Dr. Lewis, it was an unnerving situation because as a physician, you may have felt the same. To come to an end of the treatment game for a patient is the worst feeling. Especially a young patient, right? Like it all matters, but the, the years of life ahead of them, like that definitely weighs heavily on you. Yes. To tell that I have nothing in my treatment armamentarium is the worst feeling. So then I called Dr. Go and said, like, Dr. Go, there is one mutation that we can try, which is called CSF1R, but it is a variant of unknown significance. That means no one in the world knows what this alteration does. So then I am a clinician investigator at Mayo. Before that, I was a fellow when I got the Conquer Young Investigator Award by ASCO in 2020. Because of that work that I led, it's a basic science translational work, not necessarily targeting Anya's mutation or Anya's cancer because I studied lymphoma. I had a good team, bioinformaticians, basic scientists, clinicians, and also structural biologists. None of this done single-handed by myself. You know, it is a team. This is where we need to really understand. Because of grants that we got, the work that we have done, we formulated a team. So Colleen, being Anya's parents and patient and also clinicians and basic scientists. So everyone needs to come together to deliver a personalized medicine for our patient. It can be lung cancer, breast cancer. It doesn't have to be like very rare disease. That is the most important message I want to highlight here is that it is not one single person's show here. You know, it is the team that brought life back. Including people, right, Jimma, including people who may never meet the patient in person. Indeed. So all this is to say is that rare diseases are harder to diagnose because our cognitive bias is to look for things that are more common. And then finally, I think you both actually said this in various ways, Anya's symptoms were non-specific enough that you could sort of apply various labels 
to her and only in time realized it didn't fit, right? Like you did a very nice job of explaining if you don't do the right biopsy, you're not going to be able to separate signal from noise and you're going to just discern inflammation, which can come from a host of conditions, many of them not even cancer. So Anya had many different biopsies. The first biopsy actually did not show anything. So the first biopsy was actually a brain biopsy, which showed nothing. And that was done when the shunt was inserted. And that was because her inner cranial hypertension was so high. That was done to save her vision because she was losing vision. So there was an early biopsy that showed nothing. So there was just not enough there. It was just so, I don't know, dispersed and inflamed. And so that was based on the meningitis. Then the first spine biopsy, there were nodules there. You could visibly see them. They were impacting the feeling in her feet and legs. But maybe there still wasn't enough, right, to like show it. Like Dr. Abukun just said, there actually was like a tiny, tiny amount. So by the time that it tested high enough to show up on the second genetic sequencing, she was not in good shape at all. Like the lower spine, in fact, the last time she had a lumbar puncture, they wanted to do it like CT guided because there was so many, it was horrible. Like literally I've seen the MRIs, it looks like tadpoles and not in a good way in her lower spine. And so it took that long of the development to have enough to find for it to test. So while you were waiting to get the right answer, and I imagine conjuring up all kinds of possibilities in in your own conjecture, you know, what was that like? What was the waiting for the answer like? I mean, you have to realize by the second spine biopsy, she was in such bad shape that I think on some level she had begun to accept that she was going to die. That is the condition she was in. So she had had four different treatments that didn't work. One was cobimetinib, one was interferon, one was methotrexate, high dose inpatient. So at that point, I still remember that conversation. It was like we had three outside the box ideas. The three ideas were a bone marrow transplant of her own clean bone marrow after having very strong high dose chemo, a different high dose chemo in her brain which they were concerned about because she was already showing some methotrexate toxicity. And then this third thing was a second biopsy, even though we're not sure it's going to show anything. And by the way, it was the second week after the pandemic shutdowns happened. (laughs) And so when Dr. Abby Kuhn referred to having to convince the neurosurgeon, they almost didn't do this surgery. It was the COVID pandemic shutdown. And in fact, we couldn't be present there for the second one. And they almost didn't do it. We were literally warned three days before from the neurosurgeon that her biopsy might be canceled. So the fact that they even allowed it and then found this two weeks later, it just boggles the mind that it's possible because they almost didn't do the surgery. When it rains, it pours, right? You guys, I mean, not only were you dealing with the sort of terror of not knowing what was wrong with your daughter, but, you know, then a global pandemic, once in a century, global health crisis occurs. Oh, my goodness. One last thing I wanted to say as a colleague, Jim, is I wanted to commend you for your persistence. You're right that all of our patients' lives matter, but you feel a particular, I think, responsibility when there's such a young person and the way to kind of think about that is all the, like I said, all the years of life that are potentially ahead of them. And to make sure that no stone is left unturned. So, Jim, as we conclude, I wanted to know you, clearly a very impassioned, brilliant clinician researcher, You mentioned that, I think, briefly, but how did the Conquer Cancer funding, how did that help you in your work? Conquer Cancer funding actually led to the research that I did in 2000, 
20 to 21, which actually we discovered a new drug combination for lymphoma. But most importantly, of course, it gave me the skill set to interpret RNAs mutations and, you know, formulate hypotheses. Bench research is different than clinical research. The way you think is very different. We need a skill set to acquire, like, you know, studying mutations, how to study the pathways and XYZ. So that is why it is very important to get that skill set. And also, we need a team to do bench research. Of course, the clinical trials, clinical research is the same too. So that is how the Conquer Cancer Research led me to develop a great mentorship with Dr. Witzig. He's my, like my father at Mayo, you know, Dr. Thomas Witzig and also Dr. Ronald Goh, my other mentor. And also the bioinformaticians, structural biologists, basic scientists, Dr. Xiao Shang Wu. That team, I had it at my disposal where, to be honest, where I can ask a question from them. Hey, do you think this mutation worth studying? You know, then they will say yes or no. Then we will move forward. So that is what Conquer Cancer gave me, that leverage and that ability to formulate a team and help patients like Anya. So you're too humble to say this, but the way I would put it is with all of the modern advancements, I think physicians like you know more about ECD than Erdheim and Chester did. And yes, they get credit, as they should, for discovery. But just think about all the advances that you've put to good use. And again, helping one very special patient can derive insights then that will help other people. Yeah, Dr. Lee, so I want to also highlight one thing. So we as clinician investigators, scientists, clinicians, we all stand on each other's shoulder. So that is why it is very important. It doesn't have to be Erdheim Chester. It doesn't have to be lymphoma. Whatever a person is passionate to study, that he or she should be able to study. So that's why it is very important to fund research, especially like young investigators where we cannot apply directly to an R01 to get funding. That is very important because whatever the small thing that comes and get published and we read that and we formulate the hypothesis based on that, that's how the field get advanced. So that is why it is very important to respect each other. Don't say like, oh, that person is studying this. That is garbage, you know, not that. We have to respect each other and each other's knowledge and passion and play as a team for the benefit of our patients. So beautifully said. Yeah, it's extremely iterative. Just earlier, I was reading a quote from Isaac Newton, who was not particularly humble, nor should he have been. I mean, he was an intellectual genius. But even he said, I think the quote was, if I've seen this far, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think you and I, both in our formal training and then kind of more broadly, can look at our predecessors in the field, learn from what they did, and then try to leave things just a hair better than we found them, right? That's a, that's a great way of looking at research. Colleen, I'm going to end with you. I think you deserve the last word on a couple points. One is, this is a really personal question. Do you have advice as a parent for how to support a child and maybe especially a young adult with this? Like, how did you balance you know, your caregiving with trying to maintain Anya's independence, for instance? There were some growing pains and points where I think she wanted to have a little more control, even as she was losing kind of the control of the cancer. But I would say generally something that I think is really relatable is that as a parent, you're going to have to do things that are scary and uncomfortable, just like your child is doing things that are scary and uncomfortable in confronting cancer. So we had to do so many things. I can't even believe we allowed it to happen. So for example, 
We let Anya return to a fellowship at college, flying across the country less than two weeks after her first spine biopsy and one day after she was given the ECD diagnosis. She literally got on a plane with stitches still in her back and unable to carry anything, which meant I had to fly with her. And I sat behind her so she could recline into my seat. The first year after she got sick, before she'd even had a spine biopsy, she went off and did a photojournalism internship in Oklahoma. I drove her down there and she was still burdened by horrific headaches. You can't even call them headaches, these meningitis headaches. We had nurses sometimes say, oh, I have migraines too. And we were just like, get out of here with your migraines. Is the pressure in your head three times what it's supposed to be? Like, are you going blind from them? So we let her do so many things we were afraid to let her do. But it was so important for her when she had uncontrolled ECD, had not yet gotten a treatment that was working. We let her travel outside the country and it was not controlled. At one point, they called us to ask if she needed to be medevaced. And I was like, no, put her in a hotel room. She needs air conditioning and food and leave her alone. It could last 24 hours. So like those were scary things as a parent, right? Like you're letting someone fly across the country. And so the reason as a parent, we tried to support her was because that was actually the way she wanted to approach it. I would say you have to take your child's lead, right? Like maybe a child really does want to be comforted and babied. Anya did not. Anya got through cancer by staying focused. In her mind, finishing college was it. And even though there were times it didn't look particularly good, and I will tell you, November of 2019, when she flew home in a wheelchair with me with a bag, literal gallon-sized bag of various headache and pain medications, those were scary things for parents. They're just as scary for her. We were trying to take her lead. She wanted to finish college and she wanted to maintain her independence. And to the extent that we could, we let her, even though we were not comfortable with a lot of that. Anya is fortunate, to be honest, to have Colleen. The reason I'm saying this is I have many patients, young, I'm sure Dr. Lewis, you have them too. Some patients are unfortunate and they don't have the same support from the parents and the loved ones. Right. So I'm from Sri Lanka you know, which is a collectivistic society where we live with our parents until we are 70 years old. But this is an individualist society. I respect the boundaries. However, it is very important to realize that when a young or any patient for that matter, come up with a diagnosis of a C, you know, like a cancer diagnosis, it is very important to give them the support. If it is a young patient, then he or she really needs the parent support. And then look what Colleen said. Colleen sat behind Anya so that she can... So that thinking, it's phenomenal. She thinks every single thing, like she mapped out, like this is how it is, you know, every step. It was very meticulous. So that is what really needs. I think, of course, we got the drug, you know, Anya recovered, but most of the credit goes to Colleen because that thinking is what brought Anya to us and, you know, to her care and everything. So my message is don't let a single person fight alone, you know, like, please help. And if you're not a family member, that is fine. You know, it is really, as a society, we need to work towards this and hold hands with each other and comfort our patients, you know, like we're all going to expire one day or another, you know, in this world. But it is very important to have that collegiateship and have a, a play as a team and comfort our patients while they are with us. Jim, I, I couldn't say any better myself. And Colleen, I, I know I just met you and, and even meeting was virtual, but you really have set a remarkable example. And 
Thank you for those comments, Jim. You know, the fact that this happened during COVID, at least partly during COVID, is truly remarkable because the pandemic taught me you don't know what you've got till it's gone. When my patients, caregivers, whether it was their parents or their spouse or their siblings, when they were no longer present, physically present, their absence was palpable. And it's not like I was trying to under treat anybody, but let's be honest, like I cannot replicate for my patient the relationship that you have with your daughter. I just want to pause and, and completely agree with what Jim had to say is that, yes, she's lucky to have you as a mother, but you also should give yourself some credit. Like you've done an amazing job. Even speaking today, I think is a part of that. So Colleen, can I ask, what does cancer research saves life? What does that phrase mean to you? Anya's experience, she's just the poster child for research and what it, an immediate and life-changing impact that there can be between the direct connection of her genetic testing, the discoveries that were made through her doctors in the lab with the pathologist, with genetic screening. Basically, in her case, learning that there was a drug that could perhaps successfully target her cancer is why she's alive today. I mean, it's just the simplest way to put it. At the time that they pinpointed her targeted drug, four other treatments had failed her. She was on the path to being paralyzed and then to dying. She was well down that path when that treatment was found. So cutting-edge research like this I think people have to realize that they can seem like fringe discoveries or discoveries that impact just one person. But in this case, she's gone from almost certain death to a treatment that has almost no side effects. And also, I know that already her treatment is used, being used right now on at least one other person. And I'm in contact with that person. There's another young woman who was actually in worse shape than her. And so I think that that's the kind of impact we're so thrilled about. And I know when she went to have her first spine biopsy, I think she sat in the room ahead of time and said, if something really bad happens and I die, I literally want to donate my entire body to Mayo. I want them to try to figure this out. I want them to take every part of anything where they can find this cancer, which was primarily in her central nervous system. So, I mean, cancer research to me, it, there's just a direct path. It's not like some abstract, obscure thing. And just to add there, so because of Anya's story, we are actually doing another clinical trial to test CSF1R inhibition in patients with histiocytic cancers and lymphoma. It will be open within the next two, three months, actually. So that is because of her. Well, Colleen, again, thank you for talking today and for representing Anya. Again, as the parent of a child with a rare disease, one that I arguably gave to him through my genes. I hope that when the day comes, if it comes, that I can stay by my son, as you did with Anya, where you know we're always going to be protective of our children. But it sounds like you really did a beautiful job of walking a tightrope between supporting her, allowing her to have autonomy, but giving her support that she needed. Just bravo. And the fact that you're so gracious to recognize that treatment that helped your daughter has the potential to help even one other person, let alone more, I think this shows how gracious you are. So with that, I want to thank you both for participating today. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor is healthy. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to the podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page at conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. 
This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.